we're the Cryptic Code. We're your hosts, Harmon. And Jessica. And we want to talk about cryptids, aliens, and generally anything spooky. And we cuss a lot, apparently. Indeed. Now, now today we have not a special guest, but a new co-host who will fill in when JP and Kenzie are absent. Jessica, Jess, do you want to introduce yourself to the lovely folks at home? And where do you fall on the paranormal spectrum? For example, I consider myself open to the idea of the paranormal, and though I require evidence, I believe there are genuinely unexplained phenomena. You consider yourself more of a believer or more of a skeptic? Uh, definitely more of a believer. I do prefer evidence, but not always necessary. Uh, that's what we like to hear. Uh, it's going to make proving these cryptids a lot easier. Well, we're glad to have you on the show. And for your inaugural case, we have a doozy of a story. It begins in a stretch of land on the border of Kentucky and Tennessee. With Lake Kentucky on one side and Barkley Lake on the other, it is the largest inland peninsula in America, with a whopping 175,000 acres of land and 300 miles of undeveloped shoreline. For centuries, settlers and Native Americans made use of the lush forests and abundant resources. Yet the scenic serenity of the tall oak trees held a dark secret. Underneath the canopy of thick greenery was a darkness. Shadows hiding something with a savage, almost unnatural bloodlust. Even in the 1700s, settlers spoke of it. Local Shawnee tribes told tales of a shape-shifting shaman, say that three times fast, that could take on the form of a beast. Yet the European settlers knew it by a different name. One said only in hushed whispers by settlers who watched the tree line with a wary eye and a ready rifle, the Luguru. However, these legends were far from the minds of the Tennessee Valley Authority as they chose the area as a prime location for development in the 1940s. By 1944, they built a number of dams on the Tennessee River, as well as an accompanying one on the Cumberland River in 1964. And these dams actually caused the creation of the two aforementioned lakes, earning it the name The Land Between the Lakes or LBO. So we have the perfect setup for a cryptid. You know, he has all his space. He has his little, like, shoreline and everything. And then we decided to piss him off. Yeah. So good. And in 1963, it was designated a national park under the order of one John F. Kennedy. It would serve as a popular spot for hiking, camping, and even hunting. Dude, what if the beast is the guy who shot John F. Kennedy? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but honestly... Why not? Give me one reason why not. Well, I mean... It seems like he likes this area, so maybe he's not really traveling. Also, it seems that he was ticked off the people who actually did it. Probably didn't care too much about who signed the executive order to do it. He's <laughs> just a crypt in the woods somewhere. He's holding a newspaper. He's like, that son of a bitch. Actually, you know what? I like that better. Yeah? Yeah. Among the swaths of tourists visiting the park was a group of college students from the local Murray State University. In 1973, they were camping within the land between the lakes in the hopes of gaining a brief vacation from the studies and stress of a busy semester. Night had settled over them, and the group gathered around their campfire, perhaps sharing beers and maybe a few, you know, doobies, some grass, some silly cabbage. Uh-huh. 
Is that what the kids call it? The devil's lettuce. The devil's lettuce. I mean, it is the 70s now. Yeah, true. Who knows? They may even have been telling a few scary campfire stories, unaware of the horrible irony that they're about to be in one themselves. And like any good scary story, it had the classic cliche. One of them went off into the woods to pee. Of course, that's how this like starts for them. Is that one kid was like, "Gotta go break the seal, guys. Sorry." I just is that we like boo when that happens in movies because it's unrealistic. But I've known people to do that. Not me. If we're out in the woods, I don't even have to know if there's a cryptid out there. I'm pissing in front of everyone. <laughs> it's group bonding. Okay. When the wayward urinator returned, he was visibly frightened. Something's out there, he said. I, I could feel it watching me. Ah, it's nothing. Your mind's just playing tricks on you. There's nothing out there. Suddenly, the group looked to the forest as they heard something stirring in the woods. Though it was obscured by foliage, it could make out a large mass moving through the tree line, circling them like a hungry shark. Its starving eyes reflected the amber glow of their campfire's flickering flame. And when it howled, they felt their blood run cold. Ugh, guys, I, I think it's time we should leave. You don't fucking say, Todd. Should we leave? I was gonna invite over for s'mores. Just get in the fucking car. With that, the students piled into their car and prepared to dash out of there. But just as they slammed on the gas pedal, they felt something grabbing onto the rear bumper. The creature, whatever it was, had sunken his claws into the car and was holding it in place. Desperate, the students pressed on the pedal as hard as they could. Inch by inch, the tires pulled against the creature's grip kicking up bundles of mud and dirt, and then suddenly, it worked. The car broke from the monster's grasp and shot off into the dark, not stopping or even slowing until they were safely back on campus. Isn't this just the plot of Jeepers Creepers? I don't think the beast is throwing anyone down wells. Okay, fair enough. He's like, grab it on the car. Did you know there be a third one? A third Jeepers Creepers? Yeah. Really? We should tell you how good it was if you didn't know it existed until two seconds <laughs> right, ago. Right, exactly. Because, like, he gets in a high-speed police chase. And it gets really stupid. I don't understand how he had a license plate to begin with. <laughs> and a custom one. Right. Like, <laughs> that dude walked into a body shop. No pun no, intended. Like a DMV. Like, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, if you're a DMV person, are you are you going to stop him? Probably okay. not. Yeah. You probably can't your license plate. Fuck off. This, however, is just one of a series of increasingly strange encounters with a cryptid that has become known as the Beast, the Beast of the, of the Land, Land Between the Twigs. Now, for convenience, I'll be referring to it either as just the Beast, or the Beast Between the Lakes, or the Beast of LBL. But have you ever heard of the Beast before? I have not heard of the Beast, but they also gave him the longest name they could possibly think of. I, yeah. I, I'm i going to have to find a shorter title for this episode because that's too much. It like scrolls across the screen as people <laughs> are listening to this in their car. And unsubscribe. I think now would be a good time to give a general description of the beast. Usually you'll smell it before you see it as it emits a heavy rotting stench. Not a lot of Irish spring and box a- axe body spray in the wilderness. Box axe spray, yes, Harmon. It is said to be a seven-foot-tall bipedal wolf with large claws and red glowing eyes. That's right. We're dealing with a bona fide werewolf. So, so we all... it's Snoop Dogg. 
It's like six feet tall. Its eyes are always red. Oh, seven feet tall. Seven feet tall. Its eyes are always red. Is Snoop Dogg fucking Snoop Dogg. massive? I don't know. I feel like he's tall. <laughs> Snoop Dogg, retweet us. Tell us your height. I don't think Snoop Dogg is listening. You, you never know. He might be. He's right. high as fuck. <laughs> this would be just his jam. It I mean, really would. The Osbournes are into cryptids and stuff now. So, like, who knows? So we all know the basics of a werewolf, such as silver and the full moon. Do you have any additional lore you like to add for the people at home? Anything about uh, werewolves you'd like to add? I don't think so. Hmm. Don't know a lot about werewolves. You know who does? Alyssa. Our friend Alyssa on the Strange History Podcast. She will tie anything into the Twilight. It's terrifying. Now, I think it would be a good time to explain something. As you might remember, the early settlers called the creature the Lugaru. Have you heard of the Lugaru before? Uh, for those at home who are unaware, the Lugaru is a French term meaning werewolf. More specifically, it comes from the old French words lou meaning wolf and guru meaning werewolf. So wolf werewolf. Don't you just love language? It's like... When my high school had a lunch called cheese con queso, which means cheese with cheese. <laughs> we got extra cheese up in this bitch. And they're like fucking wolf of a werewolf. Now you might assume that this is just your regular old werewolf, but with a weird French accent. But the Lugaru has a few added strings. Namely, the transformation is brought on by a curse typically caused by a victim being a poorly behaved Christian. You didn't follow the rules. You didn't go to church. God punished you by turning you into a furry. Oh no, I did not go to land, and now I have. Now I must yeef on the full moon. Oh. And now, if you're a furry in real life, God punishes you by turning you into a you. person. Yes. <laughs> Eventually, you'll have to take the costume off, Stephen. Okay, if you call yourself a long thing. This curse was supposed to last 101 days, with the victim changing to a wolf every evening before reverting into a human form by morning. One way to give the, the curse early was to pass it on to someone else via a bite. Speaking of biting, the Lugaru was portrayed in some traditions as pretty violent, supposedly being known for hunting down and devouring Catholics who skipped Lent seven years in a row. She got six. If you go seven, a furry will come into your house and murder you. Seven's the limit. Or yeah. six is the limit. Seven is too much. <laughs> and six is the devil's number, so you're safe there. It all comes together. I cracked the code. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what this creature is, but it's likely the best comparison the settlers had when they encountered the beast between the lakes. And I thought adding some context via the creature's folklore might be a little useful. But I digress, and we'll be moving on to our next encounter. Our next sighting comes from one Jane Thompson. She's actually considered something of a local expert on the creature and even had a blog called Guardian Tales where she made several posts about the beast between the links. Sadly, I couldn't find the original blog post, but I did find verbatim copies of them posted on other sites. This following story took place in Grand Rivers, Kentucky, not far from the entrance of Land Between the Lakes Park. It was 1978. Jane was on the porch of her aunt's house with her cousin Rhonda, almost said Rona, enjoying the warm July night. She was visiting for summer vacation and being 17 years old, she was watching out for the younger, younger kids while her aunt and uncle were out. Now, 
The house was at the bottom of a hill surrounded by woods. Dozens of trails sprang off into countless directions, and Jane's 13-year-old cousin, Joe, often explored these paths on his dirt bike. However, his uncle made it clear that he was not supposed to be out in the woods after dark. And since the sun was setting, Jane knew it wouldn't be long before he returned home. As Rhonda and Jane listened, they could hear the whizzing hum of an engine speeding through the trees. Yet, judging from the noise, he was going full throttle and he was not slowing down. Suddenly, Joe burst through the tree line with so much speed he actually went airborne before hitting the driveway. He actually had to spin out to avoid having the bike slide out from under him. He was a mess. His face was red and tears streaked down his dust-coated cheeks. Yet, he never looked at his cousin or sister. Instead, his eyes were fixed on the top of the hill. He just came down. They could tell instantly he was looking for something fearfully waiting for it to emerge from the trees. Abruptly, once the buzz of the engine died down, it was replaced by another noise. Growling. The family dogs, all in their pens, were taking defensive stances as they could sense an intruder was coming. In moments though, the growls became whines as the now frightened dogs attempted to dig their way out from the fencing. Joe turned to Rhonda and Jane, eyes wide and shaking. He shouted, it it grabbed me. Look at my leg. The leg of his denim jeans were torn open, leaving small scratch marks along his right thigh. According to Jane, the wound resembled a claw mark, so it was obvious this wasn't a cut from a tree branch. Something did this to Joe, and that something was getting closer. It walked on two legs, Joe explained. It was following me through the woods, along the path, and it walked on two legs. It ran on two legs. His breathing was heavy and ragged. Jane could see his temple pulsating as he spoke, and then he stopped. He paused in place as he heard a long, wailing howl echoing from the woods. Visibly shaken, Joe grabbed Jane and Rhonda and started pushing them towards the door. He was pleading for them to get inside, but Jane looked back and she saw it. The thing stood on the edge of the tree line, an outline darker than the shadows surrounding it. It looked like a wolf, but bigger much bigger. The mass of fur watched them and to their horror slowly began to stand up. Now on its back legs, the thing was a towering creature about a foot taller than your average man. Quote, it raised his long snout in the air and let out a gargling, slow, deliberate howl by stretching his long arms to his sides and upwards like it was praising the coming of the night, praying to the unseen moon and stars. End quote. The security light sensor went off and Jane noticed that it actually shielded its eyes from the glow. Eyes, Jane recalled, that sparkled like ebony in the darkness. The three ran inside, making sure the door was locked. Even further, they barricaded the door of whatever they could find. Next, they ran to the kitchen, emptied the knife drawer, arming themselves with blades as some basic manner of defense. Thirdly, all three kids, along with their indoor basset hound named Stubby, hid under the bed of their entree. There they wait in tense, choking silence. They tied the grips on their knives as they heard the dogs outside go from whining to frantic, desperate barking. They also heard movement. The beasts had moved onto their porch, and they could hear knocking objects aside and trace the perimeter of the house. Once it reached the side of the house, they heard the smashing of a glass window. It was trying to get in. Then, another sound. The honking of a horn. It was their aunt's Cadillac, 
So you press the horn a few more times, which was the signal for the kids to come out and help carry the groceries. Yet, understandably, the children were uh, a little too scared to move. They remained equally unmoved when they heard her knocking on the door. Really, they did not move an inch until their aunt had finished bringing the groceries in and found that her door was locked. You could imagine her confusion when she entered her room to find three children emerging from under her bed, armed with various stabbing utensils. <laughs> she chastised them for being so reckless with such sharp knives. That was until Joe explained his story. The aunt did not laugh or dismiss them, but in fact seemed to take it with a grim acceptance. Without a word, she checked the house and discovered the window was smashed in from the inside. Jane finished her account with, quote, the next morning, their dad warned us, stay out of the woods. No problem, end quote. The uncle later explained that he searched the sawmill and found pits full of animal bones. And near the sawmill were caves tucked away under bluffs where the beast could hide. He even told them he had seen the creature before skulking near the area of an old Boy Scouts camp, explaining why he was so willing to believe their account. I love that the uncle didn't try to warn the Boy Scouts. Right. <laughs> Just eat their fucking children. It's fine. Strange. Also, the fact that it walks on two legs, though. Like, they're describing it as a werewolf. Most of the accounts describe it as a wolf-like creature. But then it stands up on two legs. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it kind of switches. Because it sounds like it was running and then it kind of crawled and then it right. switched back. I feel like... We need to call in an expert on official werewolf lore and find out if they're allowed to get up on two legs. Uh, um, any furries in the audience want to weigh in? Please do. Yeah. Uh, you can reach us at the cryptic code on Twitter. Please don't uh, send us furry art. I will kill myself. <laughs> That's your 13th reason. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a pretty intense encounter. This thing clearly is violent and God knows what could have happened. If the aunt didn't arrive in time. Any thoughts you want to share? What are you doing in this situation? You're like a child. 17, 17. Uh, um, you have two children with you. And you just put yourself in this situation. What are you doing? I feel like I'd be like Lori in Halloween. Where I'm like, <laughs> go hide. Go lock yourself in the bathroom. <laughs> like, you meant you're going to send them out. <laughs> no, no, like Lori, like when she's babysitting the two kids in the original Halloween movie, not the fucking shitty Rob Zombie remakes. Anyway, you know. Don't she, come at us, Rob Zombie fans. She sends the kids into the bathroom, tells them not to come out under any circumstances until she comes back, and then she goes out and tries to fight Michael. I feel like I have this weird, like, God complex where I'm overwhelmingly wanting to be a hero. So I would probably send the kids somewhere and I'd be like, all right, let me get this fucker. And I'd, like, saw off my shotgun and go out there and get it. And then it would kill me and eat me. <laughs> I love that you just have a shotgun. Yeah. In this scenario. A sawed-off shotgun. Groovy. Yeah. But now I just, I don't know what I would do. I feel like it's a very stressful situation when there's kids involved with anything trying to deal with something like that, but I am totally throwing the kids out the door. I will lock those little shits out. Harmon does not like children. <laughs> well, if it's them or me, I'm picking me every time. Gee. There's there's room for one numero uno here and numero uno just lock your ass outside of a big ass wall. Yeah, I'm sorry. I haven't seen the kids. Um, did you check the hole by the Boy Scout camp? <laughs> did you check the sawmill and the shallow graves? Yeah, I'm not I'm I'm a coward. 
Now, this next story is also from Jane. In 1982, she was working the late shift at a gas station near LBL. Since it was late, they, there weren't many customers. Most who came in were the kinds of people you expect to be up that late. Namely, truckers, delivery drivers, and police officers. So, she wasn't surprised when a man in police uniform entered around 1 a.m. In her account, she referred to this man as Bill, though this isn't his real name. Bill was a regular customer, so Jane recognized him. Yet, when before he was a pretty laid-back guy who was known to joke around, here he looked grim. His eyes were red, contrasting with the dark circle surrounding him. One coffee, please, Bill said. Oh, and a water for my partner. Bill motioned towards the parking lot where Jane looked over to see another officer, whom she calls Adam, sitting by the pumps. He had his head in between his legs and seemingly just emptied his stomach on the ground. Jane obliged, handing them their order and coming out to the parking lot. Adam seemed grateful and took the mint that she offered. She sat with them in hopes to learn what had them so troubled. It was a long time before finally Adam spoke. Quote, I, I can't believe it. It's not possible. I, I, I just can't believe it. Bill nodded. I know. It, it was just so unbelievable. I've never seen anything like this before. I've never even heard of anything like this before. End quote. Then perhaps feeling a need to get it off his chest, to share this experience with another person for maybe no other reason than the fact he needed to know he wasn't crazy, Bill began to tell Jane what happened. Jane noted the wariness in his eyes as he spoke. He told her that a call came in from a newlywed couple on a honeymoon to land between Blake's Park. While they were hiking, they came across an RV camper. They could smell something terrible inside. Venturing closer, they found something that truly disturbed them. So much so that neither were willing to separate to go find help. Instead, both walked back to town together. Which is good, never split the group. They even refused to return to the scene to show the police, but rather just gave them directions there, refusing to go back into the woods. Within hours, the campsite was swarmed with dozens of officers and coroners from different counties. What they found inside the camper was a massacre. Blood splattered the walls and windows. Limbs were scattered throughout the camper as well as the surrounding campground. Three bodies could be identified. An older man and a woman, presumably spouses as well as their teen teenage son. They seemed to be torn apart. At first, police theorized it may have been an animal attack as the wounds seemed to resemble claws and fangs. However, the claw marks were wider than those of a bear, and the bites did not match up with those of a wolf. They were far too big. The official explanation was settled on grizzly bear attack. This is despite the fact that grizzlies are not native to the area and, in fact, would have had to cross a significant amount of land to reach Elbia. But that theory came apart at the seams when one officer stumbled upon an unsettling piece of evidence. A little girl's dress. The family of three was actually a family of four. There was a daughter, and she was missing why a dangerous something was still at large. They began their search for a renewed vigor. vigor. Officers fanned out in all directions, scanning the forest with their flashlights. During the search, they found something else. They managed to discover one of the father's severed arms, still clutching long strains of gray and brown hair of his death grip. Yet, no little girl. That was until one of the officers supposedly passed from under one of the tall pine trees and felt a droplet drip onto his hat. 
he looked up and screamed. When the others found him, his wide, fear-stricken eyes looked upwards. Blood stained his face and shirt. He found her. Her body was hanging from one of the high tree branches. After about seven hours at the scene, the bulk of the officers were dismissed with a simple order. Never speak of this again. Tourist season was just starting. The town needed that money that came with summer visitors, and the last thing they needed was a case like this scaring people off. Jaws. I was, that was literally the next <laughs> sentence. Not to distract from how horrifying the story is, assuming it's true, and I got off the internet, so a healthy dose of salt. This is a very Mare from Jaws vibe right now. Right. Coming. Like, oh no, don't shut down the town. We can't talk about this. People won't come to the beach this summer. You know, like, it's the same concept of, you know, wanting people to come camp and hang out in the area and spend money in the area. And I understand that, given that we're in a small state that has very few tourist attractions. And, you know, if somebody got murdered on the front steps of the asylum, we'd keep it open. <laughs> oh, 100%. But... It's iffy. Also, the never speak of this again. This is something I would want a formal report written about. No, homie. No paper trail. We gotta save the tourism. I wonder where they like, everyone's gonna think all of these police officers are nuts if we file a report and do this. Because they could have filed the report and kind of kept it you know, still under wraps a little bit. They don't have to release that information to the public to file the police report of the incident. I, I imagine they took a report. They're just It's going to be in, like, the mayor's safe at home or something. That accidentally catches on fire on the inside, even though it's a fireproof safe. Something crazy. But, yeah, it really feels like life is imitating art here, isn't it? Jane wrote that a month or so later, Bill and Adam returned to her store and explained that the test results on the hair strands had returned from the lab. According to them, it did not match any known creature. Yet, the one it resembled most was a wolf. Dun, dun, dun. So we're in like a national park type of area. They yeah. want tourists coming. We have an unknown creature's hair. Yeah. Aren't there like tribes of people who are like cannibals who are living in the national parks? Maybe it's just wearing some weird mixture of fur and they like ripped it off this person who's insane and carrying people up trees and is like seven feet tall. Oh, you mean like the feral people? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. I always heard it was just like a bunch of like people who went wackadoo because there probably are people living in national parks, but I don't think they're cannibals. I think most likely they're like drug dealers. You know, like Drug dealers. You, yeah, that happens all the time, dude. People like go out in the woods to grow their pot plants because no one's going to find them. Right, and also it's protected land. So if you dig up the pot plants, you're going to dig up something else that you can't be digging up. So I guess that makes sense. I mean, Pablo Escobar did that, right? I know some yeah. like famous drug dealer used the national parks to like hide his operations. Al Capone was here. Um, anyway, <laughs> that joke's not going to make any sense to the no, audience. It's not. Rip you guys. But no, I just, I don't, I'm not convinced that it's not a crazy person out here murdering these people yet. Okay. How would you match the uh, wounds then? If, if this is accurate, that it's like call marks and stuff, unless it's a really dedicated furry. Maybe. Or have you ever seen, there's, 
these kind of rings that you can get that almost like extend your finger and you can get those made with like claws or knives at the end like they can be made as weapons so they fit like your whole finger and then the end is like way bigger and maybe this is just some crazy person who lives in the woods and had specially made knives at some point and now they're like with their little claw knives murdering these people and carrying little girls up trees i don't know i just want to state that your logical explanation is that a hobo Freddy Krueger <laughs> lives in the national parks, yes. yeeted three people, and then yeeted a little girl up a tree. I'm surprised she wasn't found over some like impassable mountains or something crazy instead okay. of in a random tree. Yeah, this is giving missing 411 vibes, isn't it? It is, a little bit. Uh, for those who don't know in the audience, although I imagine it would be weird if any of you haven't heard of this, missing 411 is a phenomenon of unexplained disappearances in national parks. And who knows, maybe this beast is behind some of those. Maybe. As impressive as this tale is, you might have noticed a distinct lack of physical evidence that I can concretely present. Regardless of whether that's because of a cover-up or hence that the story is merely a fabrication, it has led many to conclude that the murders are the product of Aranet urban legends. Nothing more than a spooky story to keep campers up at night. That was until a witness emerged. A witness? Yeah. December of 2020, a man calling himself Roger approached a YouTube channel by the name of Cryptid Studies Institute claiming to not only be a witness of the campsite massacre, but a survivor. This sounds like Cryptid Studies Institute being a real thing reminds me of Accepted, where it's the South Harmon Institute of Technology. South Harmon Institute? Yes, shit. And the students are shitheads. Somebody of course it has Harmon yeah, in it. Somebody knows what this movie is in the audience, I'm sure. They have to. It's a good movie. One person's just losing his mind. One person is going, this girl makes too many pop culture references. Nah, you need to listen to the older episodes. I should. Now, according to him, he was not a member of the deceased family, but instead a friend they invited along for a camping trip. It's from Roger that we learn a bit more information about the victims themselves. The father is named Levi, the mother Diane, the 13-year-old son was named Stephen, and the 9-year-old daughter was named Connie. Roger said that they were a former Amish family who had recently been exiled from their community, and that's why they were kind of, you know, eager to make friends. Once they were at the campsite, the family split up to handle different tasks. Levi and Stephen went to gather firewood while Diane and Connie prepared dinner. Roger, with nothing else to do, decided to kill time with some practice shooting. So he grabbed a handful of cans along with his 410 shotgun. Now, Jessica, you're a bit more familiar with guns than I am. Do you have any insight to what a uh, 410 shotgun is? What's it like? Is it is it big? Is it a big gun? It would be a relatively large weapon, I guess. What, wouldn't wouldn't call it huge. Maybe like mid-sized to a large shotgun, yeah. Would it stop a bear? Probably. Okay. I'm not expecting this, like, child to be lugging around like a fucking elephant gun or something. Right. I mean, it might stop a bear. It might just be enough to, like, kind of scare a bear away. 
okay. You know, like, if you hit it in the wrong spot and you don't kill it, you're probably, like, not doing much damage to the bear. But it's enough that you could get it to turn away from you and please. Okay. While you're saying the cans, he heard Steven and Levi shouting from the woods. Roger looked over to the source of the noise by the front of the RV and saw Steven within the grip of a creature that appeared to be a bipedal wolf monster. Levi was not far away. Leveling his 20-gauge shotgun, he pulled the trigger. A bit of flesh and skin tore away from the monster's shoulder, yet tragically, it hit Steven, too. Though Roger states Steven was already dead by this point. The creature was far from dead, however. You see, Levi's gun had only been filled with bird shots. In a flash, it rushed, it rushed towards Levi, grabbing him and snapping his neck before tossing him aside. Which isn't normal werewolf behavior, I would imagine. Probably not, no. Yeah. At this point, Roger readied his 410 shotgun and blasted the creature. It went flying back into the trees, and Roger, still terrified, decided he needed to act quickly. He hid underneath the RV in the framework. It was then that he heard Diane and Connie screaming from inside the camper. Whatever he shot, it was not alone, and his partner had burst through one of the windows into the camper. Roger stayed down there until the scream stopped. They heard the thing retreating into the woods. Once the coast was clear, he made a run for it, until he managed to flag down a truck that gave him a lift. The driver, Roger noted, seemed almost familiar with the phenomenon. He was urgent, but as the, wit as the witness put it, appeared like he recognized what he was describing. The driver took Roger to his farm and placed the call to the police. When the authorities arrived, he noticed they did not appear to be any local or state police but an unmarked department, with many of them wearing camouflage, perhaps implying that they were military. They had led him back to the scene of the incident and surprisingly did not friend him into silence. All they did was tell him the incident was best left forgotten and flew him back home to his family. Whether this was altruism or they knew no one believed him anyway, that's left up to debates. Now, if Roger's account is to be believed, there are some key aspects worth noting. Namely, the attacks occurred during a full moon, or at least close to a full moon. This might tie into our next observation. According to him, it wasn't Connie's body found in the tree. Her body was in the camper. In Roger's retelling, the body found in the tree was actually the body of the creature he shot. That might seem odd, though, because most versions of the story state it was Connie. Mistaking a little girl for a giant bipedal wolf seems like a big mistake to make, right? But that brings us to an interesting idea. What if the body in the tree was human? Remember, according to Jane's report, it was eight hours before the police were done at the scene. You know what could have happened in eight hours? The moon would have set. What if the creature was genuinely a die-the-wool, genuine article motherfucking werewolf. My classic how the moon shape-shifting werewolf. And by the time the police collected his body, it had already turned back to human. Maybe, but still wouldn't he have been an adult and they're saying they found a little girl? I don't know. I guess, like, it would be easier than saying they just found an unrelated person. Because you have to remember, we're getting, like, third-hand accounts at best. Right. Did no one... Did they just leave it in the tree? Did no one actually go up and check? They just saw the blood drip down. They went, oh, that's Connie. Never mind. Let's get out of here. Well, I imagine they collected it. Right. They would have to. 
And then they probably made it disappear or something, because, like, what are they going to do with it? It's an Area 51. Oh, that'd be badass. It's a bright Patterson Air Force base. They can't stop all of us. A few more sightings have come out over the years, mostly short glimpses by hikers and hunters. Yeah, there are a few pieces of evidence I want to present. The following is a clip from someone claimed to have recorded the howls of the beast during a Labor Day investigation in 2017. Now, I'm just going to play this part. I'll link it on the Twitter, but I'm not going to record our reactions because that'll be too much audio to deal with. So, we'll meet you when we're done. So, so what did you think of that? Now that you've heard the howls of the beast, that... It sounded like very typical wolf sounds to me. Well, what else is a werewolf going to sound like, Jessica? I don't know. Open your mind. Don't let the man's narrative hold you down. It's just saying that this is very specifically this creature, and then it just sounding like a normal wolf is concerning to me. (sighs) Fine. The next bit of evidence is a photo of a footprint found uh, within LBL. It appears to be a naked footprint, as you can see from the toes. But I will admit, it's not concrete. Uh, it does appear to be bigger than a human's foot, so what do you think of that? I'll post this on the Twitter for anyone curious. Do we know the size of the foot of the person who is compares- in comparison with this, though? Uh, no. Okay. I actually have no context for this footage. Interesting. Because, like... What if, what if this person has a very small foot? Like, what if they're wearing, like, I don't know, like, kids four? And <laughs> it's a child. That my foot would look like that next to a kid's four or something, you know? That brings the question of who's walking around barefoot now, be Right. Like, I'm not saying it's normal to walk around barefoot, but people do it. There's, like, crazy lady on TikTok who does it. There's a lot of crazy people on TikTok. Okay, well, Alice and Fern, specifically, it's a like crunchy mom lady who has a baby she walks barefoot everywhere even into grocery stores her feet are black i don't think they're ever coming clean i'm gonna vomit (laughs) it's really nasty but she would probably walk barefoot there Uh, also isn't this a lake this is like the shoreline right because there's cracks like this has been wet well it could have just been the forest it could have been but this looks like it stays relatively wet there's a footprint in the center of it Maybe this is just shack, barefoot at the lake. Are you all prepared for a shack attack? (laughs) (laughs) Harmon, a family died. You have to be serious. Why? (laughs) (laughs) That's funky terrible. And finally, explorers have claimed to have found bunkers scattered throughout the park. May have speculated that these were constructed by the government as a means of containing the beast or battlements from which to kill it. I have my doubts. Some online have pointed out that these bunkers look a lot like cellars, which makes sense because there used to be a lot of houses here until the residents were relocated by the Tennessee Valley Authority. Still, though, I'll present you with the pictures and let you decide for yourself if I can find them. I could really only find one picture of these supposed bunkers, and this was it. I will, again, put this on the Twitter for anyone curious. This is literally just someone's old basement. Yeah. So I'm willing to bet that this creature is pretty obscure to most listeners. Despite this, the beast of land between the lakes does have some cultural impact. Namely, the creature will be the subject of a film titled The Beast of LBL. Though it is not released yet, at least to my knowledge, I might be wrong. It has, however, sparked some controversy among locals of the LBL area. 
May in the region believe that the movie and even associated folklore is insulting to the true history of LVL, as well as the lives are uprooted here. One resident, David Nickel, said in an interview with WKMS Radio, quote, when someone makes up something like that for fun or, I don't know, profit, and tries to say this was part of Between the Rivers folklore, that's just further polluting the truth of what was here, end quote. Uh, Between the Rivers is what was known before Land Between the Lakes, before the rivers became lakes. Right. Personally, though, I feel like the story of a supposed cryptid could serve as a big boost to the area's tourism. Like at our classic example, Point Pleasant, most people who go there, I'd say like 99%, go there for Mothman. But those same people get pulled into the Revolutionary War Museum, the war, uh, the Riverboat Museum, and the McClintic Wildlife Reserve. But that's just my personal take. Right. So it's kind of the all press is good press situation. Yeah. So even though maybe this is a negative story, people are going to go there. It's almost like Bigfoot hunting or like you said, Mothman hunting. Like people are going to go to the area probably looking just to see this creature. Um, so maybe don't focus on the fact that you feel like this is negative and insulting to your town. Focus on the fact that this is going to bring money and opportunity to your town. You can create more museums. You can have a museum that tells the actual history of the town instead of all of the monster stuff. So use it as a plan to educate people further on your area and what it's actually about instead of necessarily taking it all as a negative aspect. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get it, but at the same time, one, cryptids are just fun. It's fun. It's a fun story. Two, I feel like it's kind of demeaned to folklore to say, like, that stories of monsters don't have any value. Right. Yeah. And, and it can help out with the economy, as we've seen time and time again. I guess his fear is that it could be, like, ha- to go back to Jaws, how after Jaws, like, beaches had record low attendance. But the thing is, sharks are real. Right. And... And no one, there's nothing cool or mystical about being mauled by a shark. Why a werewolf? I kind of want to see a werewolf. Fair. And fuck him. What? Don't look at me like that. You're saying though. Um, I don't remember now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was the furry all along. That's no. the plot twist. You're the monster. Harmon by day. The Beast of LBL by Night. Yeah, for those at home, Jessica's giving me a very sad, <laughs> broken look. What a great first episode. But now we come to the theory section of this episode as we take guesses as to exactly what the Beast of LBL was or possibly still is. The first theory, and the weakest in my opinion, is that the Beast is a distant relative of the Sasquatch family. I kind of thought that. Really? Throughout the whole thing. So he very much does seem like you could compare him pretty well to Bigfoot or a Sasquatch, however you like to refer to them as. Um, But, you know, people talk about, he smells bad. Mm -hmm. Supposedly Sasquatch also smells pretty bad. Um, he's really tall, so is a Sasquatch. He walks on two feet, so does a Sasquatch. I don't know, it sounds almost like another play on a Sasquatch. Possibly. I've seen this thought pass around a little bit online. The biggest thing is that the creature is described as having hair instead of fur. But 
besides the points you've really brought up, I don't buy too deep into this. Mainly because all the testimony from witnesses say it looks like a fucking wolf. Why Bigfoots are like monkey, monkey boy, Harambe. What if we just say maybe it's a crossbreed of a wolf and a Sasquatch and it has a wolf and a Sasquatch body? Are you about to say Bigfoot is a furry? Yes. Is that the big reveal of this episode? I think so. I hate that. Well, everyone, this is the episode that breaks Harmon. So let's get to the nitty gritty. Clearly, this thing is a lycanthrope, a mythical cross of man and wolf. Yet, lycanthrope is a bit more complicated of a category than one might initially believe. I think this is like our third episode where we said this, but there is a difference between a werewolf and a wolfman. For those who don't know, a werewolf has no control over his transformation, while a wolfman can shift whenever he wants. Things only get more complicated when you add in dogmen, which are simply wolf-human hybrids with no transformation. That's just how they be all the time. So of these three classifications, which one do you think best fits the uh, Beast of the LBL so far? Uh, I guess Wolfman, maybe. Are they controls it? I think potentially he does. What makes you think that, if I ask? It's still, like, the two feet thing for me, and I understand maybe that's more of, like, a dogman to other people, but it's the fact that, like, he seems to shift and then goes on a murderous rampage. That feels like a choice to me. <laughs> <laughs> he chose violence. He woke he up today and chose violence. He did. Personally, I'm leaning towards either Dogman or just straight up classic werewolf. Uh, I don't think there's any intelligence to the creature's actions beyond animalistic instinct. Wolfmen can plan out their actions. The wolf form is just a means to expedite violence. However, given Roger's statement about the full moon and the fact that the beast is mostly seen at night barring a few encounters, I personally think it's a werewolf. The idea is just, I don't know, it's just too cool to not want. Like, I don't know if I believe it or I just want to believe it. Like, let me just pitch this theory. I had mentioned earlier that a lot of people were relocated to make way for the development project, right? Over 800 families were forcibly removed via eminent domain from the land between the lakes area. Decaying ruins were left behind. Entire towns were actually flooded. Uh, one example is Brainham, Kentucky, which is completely underwater now. And over 270 cemeteries from people who live there still remain scattered all over the park. So hear me out. What if the beast was someone suffering from the curse of lycanthropy and his family left him behind because of the development? I imagine it would be hard transporting it around. Imagine you have a relative bitten by a werewolf every full moon he transforms. You would take steps to protect, protect them and yourselves. Think about all the classic werewolf movies where a character knows they're going to transform, so every full moon they chain themselves up in the basement. Well... What if because of the relocation, no one ever came to let them out? Maybe eventually it got out and is now just running a rampage because it has nowhere else to really go. What if this is its revenge instead? What if it can choose to shift? Oh, and this it, is its revenge. And he's like pissed off? Yes, he's upset that he was left behind. So oh, he's choosing cool. to shift to murder all of these people. Or like is a wolfman already who just hates the eminent domain. He's like, I'm going to get... I'm gonna, fucking murder people Urgh. once again john f kennedy <laughs> okay <laughs> wolfman in the second floor of the texas book depository gun ready that was his main goal as a wolfman was to shift and get a hold of john f kennedy <laughs> and then he got shot in that parade 
poor wolf man is like, fuck, someone else got him first. He's the figure you see on the grass. You know, he just turned back to human form. He's running away. The JFK assassination would be very different if the footage was JFK getting mauled by a wolf in downtown Dallas. I love this idea. <coughs> Filmmakers get on it. Or maybe it is just a wolf, a dog man just living in the wilderness. And the influx of tourists into his territory is why it's suddenly becoming way more aggressive. Sadly, there's also the inevitable theory that it's all a hoax. I notice that there's not a lot of hard evidence. This could be the effect of a cover-up, or it might also be because it's all bullshit. I mean, Roger's testimony is really the only piece of proof we have that the 1982 murders happened. And I would not be doing my due diligence if I didn't consider the possibility that Roger is lying. As much as I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, I can't let his claims go unscrutinized. In his defense, though, his description of the camper did match up with the layout of the make and model the family supposedly had. But again, that's still far from conclusive. But the stories have been told. The evidence has been shown, and the final facts have been presented. All that's left is for us to tackle the final question we face at the end of each episode. So, Jessica, tell me, do you believe in the beast of the land between the lakes? I don't think so. Ah, you don't? I don't think so, especially when we brought up on break, you know, when we were listening to our cute little werewolf sounds on there, um, that... Roger told his story in December of 2020. Mm -hmm. We had been in quarantine for a couple months at that point. Roger may have just been a bored man, and he was like, (laughs) I need attention. So maybe he just really needed to insert himself into the story and say that he played some sort of part in it and claim that he was a witness so that, you know, maybe he could have a little bit of attention. He could make friends or something. I don't know. I just don't think think he's real. Can I throw out a wild theory? I might cut this out because I don't know if this could be considered slander. I don't know if it can be considered slander when we don't know the guy's real name. What if fucking Roger's the beast? What if he werewolfed out on them? And then afterwards he had to like cover it up. Maybe. Because like the police stories don't line up because they said it was a newlywed couple. It also does just kind of tear down the entire story that at the end of every person's account of this it's I was told to never speak of this. Yeah. I feel like that's one of those things where if somebody is saying that repeatedly I was told to never speak of this it's it makes it kind of it's too convenient. Yeah. It's too convenient that suddenly now we can't actually produce any evidence. Right. It's unreliable that every single person was told never speak of this. Also, we never found out what the military was supposedly doing. Maybe they're trying they to weaponize the Wolfman. Weaponize the Wolfman? Yeah, what if it's an experiment or something? Like Captain America? <laughs> Do you doubt the government, if werewolves were real, the government would be trying to catch that shit? You're right. They 100% would have werewolves, like, busting down doors in Ukraine or something, dude. It's America. If we can capitalize on it, we're gonna do it. So, commercializing the Wolfman into a super soldier, maybe. Not that far off. Yeah. I mean, pretty sure Disney's gonna do that soon if, like, Falcon the Winter Soldier doesn't pick up. That was a heavy sigh. Did, Did I hurt you personally there? I'm sorry. No. No. I... 
watched the first episode of that show and I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. Can't do this. <laughs> I love seeing the new Captain America get his ass kicked by like, what, a 16 year old? Yeah, and it's just like the whole time it's like Falcon trying to figure out how he's gonna take Steve's place and then it's Bucky in the corner like, oh, I'm sad. Anyway, this is an MCU podcast. No, it's not. Not yet. Yes. Personally, I'm open to the idea that Beast of Land Between the Lakes exists. Mm-hmm. Like, if I saw it, I wouldn't be like, nah, that's bullshit. That's clearly a dude in costume. I'd be like, oh, fuck, werewolf. But as of now, I don't really have a concrete reason to believe in it. Right. I want to believe Roger, but it's also a man on the internet. Exactly. Telling the story 40 years later. And. Oh, God help us, she's doing math. Oh, lordy. Nine months into quarantine. (laughs) Oh, I was so. I was terrified you were going to say 20 years, X amount of months, and be like. No. 579,600 minutes. Okay, it's not a rent podcast either. (laughs) But. Uh, Um. Yeah, no, the fact that, well, maybe it is a Rent podcast. We're talking about Roger here. So, you need to. It's great. Anyway, um, so Roger is telling this story nine months into quarantine, but also 40 years after the initial event. In his defense, what if quarantine just made him, like, think about it? Like, before he's able to distract himself, and he's like, oh my god. There's a wolf man out there. I need to tell somebody. And then... Yeah, but 40 he, years later, shouldn't Roger be, like, retired at this point or something anyway? Roger was probably bored all the time beforehand. True, true. I mean, and then on the flip side, the fact he went to a random YouTube channel. Right. It's like Roger had been in quarantine for nine months. Roger couldn't go to Walmart to get his frustrations out anymore. <laughs> I need a haircut. <laughs> he had to write a story. Well, it's a little disappointing, but honestly, I kind of expected that once I realized it wasn't. There's no hook. There's no, like, smoking gun. There's there's just, like, a single piece of physical evidence for me to sink my teeth into. Right. None of it's concrete. Yeah, it's all just hearsay. So, thank you all for joining us for this episode. Uh, We'll try and get episodes out more frequently if we can now. And... uh, I hope you enjoyed our little foray into the weird and the wonderful of the world. And I hope you all enjoyed our new hopefully co-host, Jessica. And until next time, stay safe and stay spooky out there.